What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi everyone, Connor Boyle here. Just a reminder, you can take your Intelligence Squared experience deeper with Intelligence Squared Premium. You'll get an ad-free feed, one early episode per week, two bonus episodes per month, discounts on Intelligence Squared Plus, priority access to our live in-person events, and access to our premium monthly newsletter. Sign up at iq2premium.supercast.com. Thanks for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. We're exploring the world of contemporary art today with the latest installment of our podcast, The Futureverse. Let's dive in now. Welcome to this episode of The Futureverse, the podcast that explores the conversations, ideas and insights that are driving change and shaping our future. I'm Kamal Ahmed. In the last episode, recorded at a live event in London, we introduced the latest theme in the Futureverse, the value revolution. We explored how we define value, how this has changed over time, and we asked whether the definition of value has grown to mean more than just what may or may not happen in the economy. It's not just, if we're honest, about pounds and pence. Society's role in determining what is defined as valuable financially or otherwise, is powerfully evident in the world that I'm diving into this week, in this, the fifth episode of the Futureverse podcast. Eye-boggling prices, little to no market regulation, auctions and dazzling wealth. You've guessed it, it's the art world. But behind the glamour and the intrigue lies a stark reality. The art world contains a disparity in the value afforded to artists and their work. And that disparity is based on gender. In this episode, I'll be exploring the extent of this historic gender imbalance. Art history itself has been a huge problem. Art history has done a, a, a shocking amount of damage to our understanding of female artists. The Royal Academy of Arts in London, one of the most major museums in the world, they've still never had an exhibition by a woman artist in their main space. Next year will be the first with Marina Abramovich, but it's taken over 250 years. And I'll be asking how women came to be sidelined in art history. When we look at who has told these stories of art, who has been in charge of the museums, who has, you know, been able to construct these courses around this subject, it's all been men. I'll be talking to the businesswomen, 
collectors and market specialists on the front line of the contemporary art market. And I'll ask if change is happening and whether it is anywhere near enough. Recently, you do definitely have a new wave of young artists on the scene who are rocketing to success and achieving phenomenal prices. And this wave is actually very much female dominated. Their works are so high in demand that the waiting list to buy one from their representing galleries is not even worth signing up for. Join me on this journey and let's see if we can answer an important question. Undervalued. Is the future of art female? So my name is Katie Hessel. I'm an art historian, broadcaster and curator, and I have an Instagram account called The Great Women Artists. And I set this up in October 2015 after I went to an art fair. I was 21 years old and I realised that out of all the works in front of me, not a single one was by a woman. And like I mentioned, I had just finished university. I'd studied art history at school. I'd been obsessed with going to galleries since I was a kid. And suddenly I had this light bulb moment that I'd never thought about this. It didn't even occur to me that what I'd been studying was almost sort of half missing. So I just completely like couldn't sleep one night, set up this Instagram account. And it's, you know, it's very much for me. I write on it every single day. I promote a a new artwork by a female artist. Katie, take us back through some of this journey. I I must admit, when I've been lucky enough to read your wonderful book, The Story of Art Without Men, but I was astonished by some of the facts around the invisibility of female artists. 2015, it really struck you, this light bulb moment. 2015, doesn't it appear to you to be remarkable that you are still going to exhibitions without prominent female artists? This is seven years ago. I I thought all these battles had been sort of fought and maybe even won back in the 1970s and the 1980s in the Dark Ages. We're fighting. We're fighting them. (laughs) I was amazed that in 2015, it is still so dominated by male artists. I mean, you've got to think the stat I always give people is the National Gallery. You know, 1% of the collection out of 2,300 plus artworks, 21 or 23 are by a women artist. And that is shocking because it's almost as though the gatekeepers have almost actually written women out of art history. And it's fascinating how little the public know about women artists as well and how many they could name. So I conducted a YouGov survey in about March earlier this year, and the results showed that 30% of people could name no more than three. 83% of 80 to 24-year-olds could name not even three, and more than half said they'd never been taught about women artists at school. But I mean, do you find these statistics shocking? Because when you look at the fact that the Royal Academy of Arts in London, one of the most major museums in the world, they've still never had an exhibition by a woman artist in their main space. Next year will be the first with Marina Abramovich, but it's taken over 250 years. I mean, how many women artists did you know? Because when I was 21 setting up that account, I probably couldn't have named more than 20. And that's an art history student. <laughs> I did your test. And I must admit, you do you do struggle. It's, it's incredible. It, this was such an eye opener for me. Katie, give us some sense from your studies and the work you've done about, let's start with the why. Well, I think it's the because of the gatekeepers. You know, when we look at who has told these stories of art, who has been in charge of the museums, who has been able to construct these courses around this subject, it's all been men. And so, you know, this book that I've written 
is called the story of art without men because it's a kind of tongue-in-cheek way at pointing at Gombrich's story of art, who I love, and it was one of my favourite books growing up, and I think it's fantastic. But he didn't include a woman until the 16th edition, and, and that's the edition that people use now. And there's only one woman artist highlighted in it, that being Katakolvitz. And actually, that's not good enough. So I just feel like it's just essential that these stories get told. How did this gatekeeping come about? I wanted to find out more about why female artists are all but absent from the art historical record. Rose Bolston is an art historian and the founder of Artscapes UK. And Rose, a particular area which we're going to talk about and are discussing throughout this podcast is the lack of visibility, particularly of female artists, whether they are white female artists, female artists of colour, female artists from different backgrounds from the usual Western background. Why is it not only appear exclusive, but appear exclusively male? Well, there are a number of reasons behind this. Um, if we're talking about European female artists, which is my area of expertise, we have the first major problem of domestic expectations, of course. You know, society demanded that women produce children and not art. And of course, this made it really challenging for, for many, not all, but for many women to practice. And then you also have the institutional obstacles. Even if women were able to practice, it's been very hard for them to become um, an apprentice within a studio. And therefore, it's hard for them to learn the, the, the intricacies of the different techniques that are being discovered and applied. Women were never able to join life drawing classes. And that was a big problem when the nude was an absolutely critical part of, of the art that was deemed to be the most superior. And I'm talking about history painting. Very, very few people were accepted, or women, sorry, were accepted into academies. And in academies, they could receive training, but also funding and a ready list of patrons as well who are ready to commission them. So the institution has been a problem. But then art history itself has been a huge problem. Art history has done a, a, a shocking amount of damage to our understanding of female artists. And there, there's one appalling example that I just want to, to tell you about. If we look at um, an artist such as Judith Leister, who was a brilliant Dutch Golden Age artist working in the 17th century. She was working in this very popular type of painting called genre painting alongside famous artists like Franz Hals and, and um, Gerald von Honthurst. And in the late 19th century, when the Dutch Golden Age art started to become really popular again, and the market was growing for this type of art, we find cases of dealers changing the attribution so as to sell paintings for more cash. So Judith Leister, for example, was a woman and it was deemed she wouldn't sell for half as much as Franz Hals. So we know that dealers have changed the signature on her works of art in order to sell her paintings as a Franz Hals painting and make loads more money. It's just unbelievable. And, and no wonder artists like Judith Leister has fallen away from the story. That's a remarkable story, and one that demonstrates an awful type of appropriation. According to Katie's book, the highest price fetched at auction by a living female artist, Jenny Savile's Propt, was just 12% 
of that of the highest price achieved by a male living artist, David Hockney's portrait of an artist, Pool with Two Figures, which topped £90.3 million. The most expensive painting ever sold, Salvatore Mundi by Leonardo da Vinci, fetched $450 million, while the world record for a female artist, Georgia O'Keeffe, was just $44.4 million. That's a tenth as much. Katie Hessel again. Well, I think it's the, it's the monetary value we place on society, right? So it's like when you look at the gender pay gap, it's insurmountable. It's so imbalanced. And actually, it kind of it stems from society in a way. We can't change auction overnight. What we can do is pay women more and put more women in positions of leadership. And so more, more women have money. And so more women can fund things. You know, we look at the Lionesses, we look at how brilliantly the England team did because they were funded properly and they won the Euros, you know. And then also, it's about giving them recognition. So it's how many Leonardo da Vinci exhibitions have there been? Probably like a thousands a year, I'm sure. And so his value is obviously going to go up. The prestige is going to go up. How many books have been written on? How many, how many documentaries? You know, it's about making these names, headline, mainstream names. And with, with men, it's been done time and time again. There are about a thousand Warhol documentaries and Warhol exhibitions. There was a an exhibition at Tate a few years ago dedicated to one year of Picasso's life in 1932. Yet how have you ever even seen that by a woman? Never. And so it's about pushing them into this mainstream place, making them household names. The price difference is not due to any idea of inherent quality, but due to the value we, as a society, place on different creators of art. But what determines who and what we value? That's a complex question. But as Katie touched on there, museums and institutions have a role to play in deciding who we, the audience for art, recognise as valuable. I wanted to find out more about the role of museums and institutions in tackling the financial undervaluation of female art. Alia Al-Sanusi is a cultural strategist, patron and philanthropist. She sits on the Tate's Middle East Acquisitions Committee. I started by asking her whether the museums she worked with were doing enough to promote the work of female artists. Yes, I think galleries are definitely still very market driven. I think that's a kind of completely different conversation. Galleries, of course, look for women artists that they can rediscover and then make a lot of money by, you know, the work used to be $30,000 and now it's a few hundred or, you know, who, hopefully millions. But I know the museums I work with closely, like Tate, uh, the Guggenheim, they are absolutely actively in every single meeting, every single day, rethinking how they're approaching their collections and how they're approaching their shows and how, of course, they have to keep a balance of showing audiences what audiences are familiar with. And this idea of the blockbuster, you know, that's also up for debate. Um, is that really necessary anymore? Is that really real? Or is it just a marketing manufacturing? But no, museums are absolutely actively rethinking that. And I always say, like, Soul of a Nation, to me, was a groundbreaking show that changed the way we look at art history and changed the way we look at art. And, you know, it was at a particular moment when Donald Trump was elected, it was when we were looking at race relations in not just in America, but in the world, because it was also for Black Lives Matter um, became, you know, kind of household word. And that show, because it was in a museum and then ended up traveling to four other major American museums, changed the way we look at black art. And many of those artists, you know, now have exploded at market. And, a museum then has the ability to make that market. So 
the market hopefully follows the values we see presented when they are presented in a thoughtful and beautiful way. As you say, Ale, you're on the Tate's Acquisitions Committee. Talk us through how your conversations have developed on that committee. And I'm thinking particularly around permanent displays and exhibitions, which could be seen as flashing the pan, but actually the structural need is for the permanent displays to change, which are still unbelievably dominated by male artists. In terms of the context of the Middle East Acquisitions Committee, for example, our work is about looking at Middle Eastern art um, and bringing it into the collection. So then with the acquisitions committees getting bigger and having more of them, so it started with Latin America, and then we have now the Middle East, uh, North Africa, we have African, we have Eastern European, Southeast Asian, Asia Pacific, and so on. So what the Tate has done is absolutely break uh, the traditional mold of it's not, oh, here's your... African room, here's your Asian room, and then within the Asian room, here's your Chinese section, here's your Japanese section. Absolutely not. Tate has really rethought the way in which you see a permanent collection. And obviously, also don't forget, and for our audience who are not familiar with the way in which uh, the UK and the government uh, supportive institutions uh, go, is that a permanent collection, because it belongs to the people, because the Tate is a government institution, that is always free to the public. It's the temporary shows that are, are charged. So in many ways, the, uh, the permanent collection is the way in which you can really change people's hearts and minds, because that is something that they also feel inherently and innately connected to because it belongs to them. And so, yes, of course, there is still a much of a domination of male artists, but it's also just a function of how slow these institutions can be because they are so thoughtful of course, they're trying to integrate women as fast as possible, but it doesn't happen overnight. You know, I was very lucky to be able to donate a work by Latifa Ashak, um, a, a female artist who's Swiss Algerian, um, to Tate, and they absolutely wanted her, but it took two years to get all the paperwork and things done. So it takes time, but I believe that we will see parity very soon. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. If you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify, for just $4.99 a month. Sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com Com. That's IQ, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com, or see the link in the description. Thank you for all your support. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation 
of George Orwell's classic. 1984 was pretty cool. And I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. So progress, slow, understood, again. It's been remarkable on this journey, researching this podcast, the absolute dominance of not just male artists in the auction world who are sold, but men in the auction world who run the auction world. (laughs) Is that change happening there? Is the auction world, the auction part of the art world changing? I don't necessarily think as quickly as they could. For example, I think the auction world can change much more rapidly than you know, the major museums can, uh, due to various governance and, and because the auction world is really, it's just about, you know, selling a picture or selling a, a sculpture. And I think of course it's about, you know, the commercial, the commercial benefit. Um, and it's easier selling, you know, something, you know, than something you don't, or something that's a, you know, proven track record, blue chip, etc. But I think it's a matter of marketing and a matter of opening people's eyes to these hidden gems. And the auction world is also all about art as not all, but let's say a vast majority of art as an investment. So if the auction, you know, specialists and and private sales teams can work as hard as they do to market, you know, a major painting by Rothko or by whoever, then I would hope that they will do the same thing for female artists and also revisit them because they have the ability to reeducate their clients because so often new clients go to auction first before they'll go to a gallery before, you know, they'll, they'll kind of create a relationship with an artist. And I think that they should be taking more active steps in, in especially looking at women, especially looking at artists of color and artists from around the world. I mean, the fact is you still have Middle Eastern sales, you still have Indian sales and it's, I, I think, counterproductive. I wanted to get a better sense of how the contemporary art market operates and if we are seeing any change at all. Boyana Popovich is an independent art advisor specialising in contemporary art. She previously worked at Christie's, one of the world's biggest auction houses. Prices for art by female artists has consistently been considerably lower than for male artists. 
And as mentioned, obviously, my specialism is contemporary art. So if we just focus on that small category and then look at, for example, the YBA group of artists who came to prominence in London in the 1990s, probably the two key names that most people would connect with that group are Damien Hurst and Tracy Emin. And Tracy Emin's top price ever achieved at auction is around £2.5 million, while Damien Hurst is £9.6 million. Now, you might think it's because, you know, Damien Hurst creates huge sculptures. Maybe you can't compare those to Tracy Emin's paintings or her applique blankets. But then if you compare Hurst's blossom painting that sold for £5.6 million USD this year at Sotheby's, to Emin's top-selling painting at auction, which also sold this year at Sotheby's, the latter only made around 819,000 USD. So there's a huge gap between 5.6 million and $819,000. So having said that, recently you do definitely have a new wave of young artists on the scene who are rocketing to success and achieving phenomenal prices. Um, and this wave is actually very much female-dominated, their works are so high in demand that the waiting list to buy one from their representing galleries is not even worth signing up for. And their prices on the secondary market at auction are already very much in the millions. And Bayana, is this new wave of interest in female art only focused on those working now? Or does it have an impact on the prices of female artists who are maybe no longer working? I think there's definitely been a really active shift to re-examine art history and look at artists who have been kind of sidetracked in that. Um, so recently, there has been a real surge of interest around the artist Helen Frankenthaler, for example. Um, she was part of a very male-orientated movement of abstract expressionism in America, and she passed away sadly in 2011. And yet her top nine out of 10 prices at auction were all achieved very, very recently, between 2020 and now. So clearly more and more collectors are seeing the importance of her art and definitely museums have helped with that. Um, now, for example, when you walk through Tate Modern, you'll come to a room dedicated to Frankenthaler's art and it's very close to actually her contemporary Jackson Pollock. So perhaps as a result, her, her large scale paintings in particular are currently selling for around four to seven million dollars, which is phenomenal. But still, actually, when you put that beside what another abstract expressionist artist like Mark Rothko's works might make, it's just a drop in the ocean. All of Rothko's top 10 prices at auction are over $50 million. We've touched on museums and institutions, but what's the role of galleries in all this? Well, galleries are definitely also looking at their rosters and actively including more female artists. Uh, so the big contemporary mega galleries like White Cube or Gagosian or Victoria Moreau, um, they are really considered by many as tastemakers in the art world. And to put it very simply, almost any artist they show an interest in rises to success because many collectors trust their taste completely. So the artists they add to their rosters sell out, and then this generates huge demand and drives their prices even higher. And that's really kind of simplifying the process, but, but to get the gist, um, they have a real responsibility in that sense to broaden their portfolios, to include more female artists. And I think they are definitely moving in the right direction. I mean, walking around Freeze Art Fair last October, I was actually pleasantly surprised to see female artists represented so well. However, when you look at actually the gallery's list of artists, still only around 30% are female. So it's still very far from being even. What is Katie's view on this? We're living in this age of change so much right now. 
But it's also, you know, important not to exploit artists' values as well, because I think what we're seeing at the moment is a lot of demand for young women artists, especially, which is a very sort of contentious issue. But, you know, progress is happening completely. I mean, it's, it's, I, I mean, I interned at Sotheby's in about 2012, this time 10 years ago, and there was not a single woman artist on the walls. And, and, and now people are putting them as their lot one. They're really prioritizing them because value has gone up because of the way that people like to Chile Animani putting women at the forefront, it's upping their value. It's so vital. But how many male curators did that? You know, none. So it's 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 about putting women in these spaces of leadership and change will happen. Progress will happen. You mentioned Cecilia Alamani there. Now, she's a curator who has done so much to put the work of female artists front and centre on the global stage as curator of the Venice Biennale, which this year, for the first time, features a majority of women and gender non-conforming artists. But do you worry, Katie, as you've touched on there, about the exploitation in this market for young female artists because they're seen as something of the moment? The amount of people who say to me, oh, you're so lucky, you're so kind of right place, right time with the women artist thing. And I say, that is a joke. I'm sorry. It was a passion that I loved, but also it was not right place, right time. And also, I don't want this to be a sort of trend or they're like, you know, you're so lucky you got this on the up. And I say, no, not at all, because I want to do this forever. And I want to make sure that, and and like so many like-minded people as well, is to make sure that these subjects or these issues are not trends and actually they are sustained. I, I really hope that uh, people do not exploit this subject and they actually really look at it meaningfully. You know, like Soul of a Nation, that exhibition. For me, that changed the game with, with art. I had never even heard of most of those artists before. And now I see art history in a completely different light. And it's about sustaining these stories. It strikes me that both Katie and Alia have touched on the same exhibition, Soul of a Nation, which ran at the Tate Modern in London in 2017 and highlighted the impact of black artists on American art history in the 60s and 70s. These conversations are not just about how we value female artists, they're about giving credit and providing access, full stop. Who has access to art and history? Who has access to institutions? Who is represented in art? who gets to see art and who is able to make and exhibit art. And while change, however slow, seems to be happening in galleries, museums, institutions, and even the marketplace to a degree, are we also seeing new forces emerging outside the traditional ways in which the art world has operated? Marine Tangi is the founder of MT Art Agency, the first talent agency in the art world. So kick us off about the agency and how you are trying to change the model. But let, let's just start in a slightly different space. How does the art world work at the moment and what are you trying to disrupt? Well, there's a lot of things we're trying to change. So we're going to take a broad perspective. First, you are in one of the last unregulated economical markets. Um, that is the art world. So there's very few rules, in fact, which is why up to a point, because things are currently being changed, money laundering and a lot of things could be happening within it very easily. By the definition, because it's a world and not a sector, you have very little professionalism, which means that, you know, you only have, for instance, one recruitment agency in the UK only in terms of our sector. So it's through word of mouth. Um, there's very few HRs, there's very few processes, there's very few onboarding and trainings of people. 
And it's the same when it comes to talents. You are um, in effect in a very unequal place uh, to get into because one, you'll have to have the right network, but also um, studying art at university will be £10,000 if you're multiplying this plus living costs. That's very much where you're looking at it. Um, there are so many revenue streams that were not explored um, in the sector. And that was what was really interesting to us because all of the talent sectors explore many revenue streams for their talents. That very informal lack of processes, as you say, in the present art world structure for discovering talent, what has that led to? What have been the effects of that present structure that we've had in the type of talent that is able to really get to audiences? Well, I think if you restrict access, you ultimately get, first of all, loads of biases. You get people to reinforce who they are and what they want to see. And I think it's very dangerous, especially when we're talking about the visual world. You're talking about affecting the narrative that people will have on who they are visually by just a very few people. And I think that um, is incredibly dangerous from a democratic perspective. Um, so I think to give you an, an idea, 90% of art professional comes from inherited wealth, which is enormous. So you're not even talking about uh, gender, you're talking about social economics as like the, the biggest gap because people come from so much, um, you know, wealth of networks and, and pure wealth. And I think in terms of talents, it doesn't mean that sometimes haven't broken through that we're not from these backgrounds, but you need to be connected to get in. Um, the idea of the, you know, romantic artists living in a tiny studio um, saved by patrons is frankly a complete myth. Um, even Van Gogh, his brother was one of the most connected art dealers in Paris. And when you track down, actually, that connection is essential. So while, of course, I'm a big romantic, we all love the romantic myth. In reality, it's not there. Um, the connection is what matters. And Maureen, how have you disrupted the way talent is discovered and supported? Actually creating new revenue streams like um, generating more public art projects or brand collaborations not only opened up my sector to larger audiences and solved the problems I had socially with it, but it also meant that suddenly I could bring much larger revenues to, to the sector and to my talent. Um, we are opening the World Cup this coming November with a 90-meter sculpture fully sustainable by artist Lorenzo Queen. If you think of the millions of kids who have never looked at art, but adore football, that's a classic example of a high-level contract. We're talking about um, a, a lot of money that is being put into the artists and into the sector, but actually also the impact on audiences is huge. Um, and I think I saw solutions um, as I was building the first science agency in the sector, which is like, this actually makes sense on all fronts. And equally, from a value perspective, I'm incredibly proud of how we are constantly rethinking the way people are hired, people are trained. Um, a lot of my team would never have been part of the sector if it wasn't through this company, because specifically, we've opened up the way to recruit um, and same in terms of my talents. I think that's fascinating, that connection of values and what you wanted to achieve in art with the economics of the art industry. And that takes you into very different ideas about what art is. You talk about the visual world, not, not just the art world, and also areas around sponsorship and what are the commercial opportunities with artistic storytelling, the visual world. What's the difference 
Marina, can you help us between the art world, as people may traditionally see it, and the visual world as you imagine it? Totally. Um, so I philosophically dig down uh, into that answer because I was like, there must be uh, reasons why they don't want to be part of the everyday world. And Art for Art's Sake was created by Gustave Courbet. It's actually French to start with, although the French dropped it and the English kept it lovingly. It's the idea that art um, is above any other realities. So ultimately could not belong to any social or political context or any other form of context. So I think as I dive into this philosophy, although I've again found it very romantic, I don't find it applicable to reality. Um, I found it that it kind of removes the potential of many people to be involved in our sector and and, and future potential talents, therefore. Um, so the everyday, the idea of ultimately art belongs to all of us on an everyday basis. Um, I like calling it a sector because I think a sector, again, involves the fact that many artists today are still um, uh, asked to work for free. And I think calling it a sector is, again, saying that ultimately, doesn't matter how intellectual, doesn't matter what kind of work this is, um, they, they should be valued for it. Because, again, that changes socially who can get into it. Because, you know, if you're not paid for something, ultimately, as much as you would want to do it, for purity reasons for many years, it's just not feasible. Um, and I'm sure you know, even purely on the pregnancy level, like many women artists drop out for that reason because there's no support system whatsoever in terms of economics. So it's again, I kept coming back to the economics, ironically, because I think it's one of the few sector as a solution, like the economics somehow were making things fairer. It's what made things more transparent. It's what enabled ultimately more artists to kind of be a part of it. So the word sector, which feels more corporate and probably more economical, reinforces it. And also I think the word visual more than art is saying that actually artists are at the heart of a generation who has never looked at more visuals in our lifetime than ever. We wake up in the morning it's advertising, political messages, digital messages, like we are surrounded by visuals. So why don't we want people who are caring for those visuals to be right at the heart of it and take a share from it? So it's, it's refraining from, you know, artists, something that you may see once every five weeks to what if, you know, art is public art, is on the campaigns that we see, is digital, it's, it's literally we could be surrounded by it and, and that could lift us up much higher uh, by having artists running this than purely advertisers or purely placemakers. So commercial aspects, absolutely vital in terms of the value. I love the link between economics, uh, value and therefore who has access. After talking to Marine, I do feel optimistic. Change does really seem to be happening. What about Katie? the budding young art historian who walked into an art fair in 2015 and was shocked to discover zero female artists, and who has now written the book she never had access to. What does she hope for? I would like the YouGov poll to be very different for how it was, and I would like kids to grow up knowing that women artists are just as important as male artists and we actually don't call them women artists. You know, why should this book have to exist? I think it, it is completely necessary. Like I've said in the book, you know, I don't see any any difference between the greatness of artists by any genders. And I just hope success would look like for kids to be interested in art, feel like they belong 
in this subject and they are worthy of being included as a subject of art because that's sort of where it all began for me as well you know as a kid going to the Tate Modern and just being startled and so let's just like turn to one page and talk about this image and maybe they'll see themselves in it or maybe they'll remind them of something or maybe they'll feel something about it and what's amazing is that if you start people young then they're forever going to feel like they belong in this subject and that's the most important thing and also the, the Picassos or the Jackson Pollocks that you know I write the, the introduction you know you might have heard of all those artists but have you heard of Lubaina Hamid, Harriet Powers, you know, Lee Miller, Augusta Savage? These people belong, they, they are worthy of having that mainstream attention. You know, I'm constantly sort of pitching documentary ideas for B the BBC and, and they're always like, but they're not a household name. And I'm like, because we haven't made them a household name. But if we do a documentary, it will make them a household name. And for me, you know, broadcasting and TV, and that's also very important. And I think that emphasis should be placed on it because also that's how I got introduced to art growing up was watching you know, these art programs on TV and feeling, oh, actually, I kind of understand that because someone's broken it down for me. Here's to making many more female artists household names. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.